Um, as you know, uh, we are in the middle of Lent. This is the third Sunday of Lent. Um, there's uh, two more to go, and then uh, we're in Easter uh, on April the 17th. Uh, we, it's all started on Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins this uh, 40-day journey for us as uh, Jesus journey to Jerusalem, to the cross. We journey uh, each year uh, towards the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and we kind of want to step back in Jesus' steps and, and think about what those days were like for him as he headed towards his death and he headed towards ultimate victory. Uh, and so we're, we're looking at a passage that actually happened on Thursday. Uh, but as I was preparing this week, I uh, came across a woman uh, who I'd never heard of before, and her name's Josephine Baker. Uh, Josephine Baker was an African-American who moved to France in 1925 to pursue a career as an entertainer. And in France, she became a world-renowned singer and actress. Uh, but she became actually more than a celebrity. She became a spy, <laughs> a spy for France during World War II. And France was part of the Allied forces along with the U.S. and Britain. And France, unlike U.S. and Britain, was fully invaded and then occupied by the Nazis. And in the days leading up to the Nazi invasion in France, Josephine Baker would perform at high society events that occurred in embassies of countries who were aligned with the Germans. And during these performances that she would have, she would gather intelligence and then she would pass it on to the French military. She also traveled to other countries during the invasion to perform. And when she did, she would smuggle secrets into those countries, and she would write her secrets in invisible ink on her sheet music. And then once the Nazis had taken over France, she assisted many people who were French and threatened by the Nazis to get them visas and then help them escape France, where they weren't in danger. So clearly, this woman, Josephine Baker, was a woman with a mission. She was this grassroots-level individual, and she was leveraging her unique place as an entertainer in her society to overturn Nazi Germany at a time when it looked like Germany was going to take over the world. See, by the time Germany had taken over France, Germany had already taken over Poland, Lithuania, Austria, the Slavic Republic, the Netherlands, Norway, Belgium, and Denmark. The Germans were gaining steam. Wind was in their sails. But Baker was on this counter mission. She was on this counter mission with the Allied forces that opposed Nazi Germany. And in the end, the Allied forces did defeat the Germans. And I want you to know that today there is a bigger war taking place. There's something awful happening in the Ukraine right now. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than World War II. It's a cosmic battle. It's where sin, Satan, death, evil, and hell, that they've aligned together and they oppose God and his kingdom. And this opposition started in the garden and it not, won't be consummated until the return of Jesus. But the good news is that the victory has already been won. And the plan for this victory was set forth in the text that we're going to look at today. So I want us to look at this victory. And I want it to, for us to see what it means for us in March of 2022. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Jesus, Judas called Iscariot, 
who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the presence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. The word of the Lord. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started uh, with a triumphal entry where Jesus was riding on the back of a mule. And he rides in before this huge crowd who who are showering him with praise. And the passage I just read just happens four days after this on Thursday. And during these four days between the time Jesus entered into Jerusalem until he sits down with the disciples here to celebrate Passover, he's teaching. He's teaching over and over and over again. And the city is packed. It's Passover. They've all traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this big meal. But the more that Jesus teaches, the more popular he gets, and the more popular he gets, the more opposition he faces from the Jewish religious leaders. And the problem for these leaders is that Jesus is too popular for them to do anything to him in public. So they have this quandary. They're intimidated by him, but they can't do anything about it. Well, then a solution to their problem walks in the door, and the solution's name is Judas. See, Judas is on the inside. He spends time with Jesus in private, and since he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, which are like sons or apprentices, he's got an inside track to help them. And so Judas offers to help these Jewish religious leaders capture Jesus. But why would Judas do this to Jesus? I mean, think about it. I mean, Judas is one of Jesus' personal friends. Judas has heard everything Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Judas has seen all the miracles. It just seems incomprehensible that he would betray Jesus in this way unless you really know the depths of the darkness of the human heart. See, look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see why he did it. He did it. For money. Money played into Judas's motivation calculus that led him to betray Jesus. And Judas surely overheard Jesus warn about the perils of the love of money in Luke 12, 15. 
Luke 12, 15 says, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. And it's likely that we, like Judas, that we've heard this warning too. We know about the perils of the love of money, but we, like Judas too, we refuse. We refuse to be content with our financial situation. And when we're discontent with our financial situation, we open the door to temptation. We want something more than we have. We want our, increase, our income just to increase by 10%. You know when you're looking for a house, you never look at the houses that are twice as much as you can afford. You look at the ones that are just $30,000, $40,000 more than you can afford. If I just had $30,000, more, then I could get the house. Well, no matter what your limit is when you buy a house, that's your mindset. And it's a sign, a little subtle sign, that we're discontent with what we have. And when we do it, the door opens up. And as this desire grows, we're tempted to get money in ways that doesn't please God. So we overwork. We cheat. We hoard. So brother and sister, are you content with what you have? See, Jesus did this for the money, which is exactly the reason why a lot of us do the wrong things that we do. See, but behind Judas, there was a more sinister schemer. It was Satan. It looks like Satan's scheme's going to work beyond his wildest dreams. Satan's got Judas locked in as the betrayer. He's got the chief priest locked in to arrest Jesus, to accuse Jesus, to hand him over to the Romans. And he's got the Romans locked in who would then hang Jesus on a cross. But there's something that Satan didn't know. What he didn't know is that Jesus has been conspiring too. <laughs> that Jesus, too, has a plan. Jesus, too, is operating his own scheme that's going to crush Satan and bring salvation to God's people. See, Jesus was in control this whole time. Remember how Jesus gave these cryptic commands to the disciples to go fetch a donkey for him to ride on into Jerusalem, and then it turned out just like Jesus said? Well, it does the same thing here in verses 7 to 13. Jesus is pulling the strings, showing that he's the one with a greater plan than Satan has. And it all starts here with the details of the Passover. And this Passover that Betsy read to us earlier from Exodus 12, this is this huge meal that happened annually in Jewish religious life. It was a meal that commemorated, it was a memorial meal to help them remember the freedom that they have. See, right before they crossed over on the Red Sea into freedom. There was this one last plague. And that one last plague was when God sent a sign of judgment to Egypt and as a sign of protection for Israel. And during the night, an angel of judgment would pass over all of Egypt and any household that didn't have the blood of the lamb around its goal, goal, goal post, doorposts, their firstborn was killed. And that blood that came, it came from the lamb, but the rest of the lamb was then eaten as a ceremonial feast by the family as an act of faith in their covenant-keeping God. So then God orders his people to continue this feast, to remember the salvation that he brought about on their behalf. And this sacrifice of the lamb for Passover, it's one of many sacrifices in Old Testament. You've got the sacrifice that Adam gave, that Noah gave, that Abraham gave, that Isaac gave, that Jacob gave, and then that Moses gave. Then you have 
all the sacrifices prescribed for the tabernacle and the temple and the law. Then you've got, in Leviticus 16, you've got the sacrifices made on the Day of Atonement. See, there's blood everywhere in the Old Testament. You ever wonder why? But these Old Testament sacrifices that they're offered again and again and again, they're only with animals. They never could atone for sin. But neither, neither could the blood of a man. God never asked a human to be sacrificed to bring about salvation until he offered the covenant blood himself through his son. So when Jesus says in our text, it is my blood, he was saying, it is my blood that will establish the covenant. It is my blood that will atone for your sin. It is my blood that will gain your salvation. Jesus was saying, all that I ask of you is to believe in the cross where I will give my blood for you. And then by faith, when you get to this meal, you will drink the benefits of the sacrifice I've made for you. So when you come back to this table each week, you're looking backwards. You're looking 2,000 years backwards at the cross where Jesus spilt his blood for you. But when you come to this meal, you don't just look backwards 2,000 years ago. When you come to this meal, you're also looking at the here and now. You're all also looking at the present. See, Jesus has attached himself to this meal in a mysterious way so that he is present with us in it. And he desires to share this supper with you as eagerly, verse 15, as eagerly as he does, did the disciples. So while we look at the past, the cross, you need to look at the present. Yet often when we look at the present, we don't see Jesus when we come to this meal, do we? What do you usually see when you come to this meal? You usually see your sin. And because we see our sin much more readily than we see Jesus, we live in shame, guilt, and misery, even though one of the promises found in the blood of the cross is that Jesus remembers our sin no more. See, if we could only be like Jesus and forget our sins, but we remember the sins that Jesus has already forgotten. That means this table can be a place where you meet with Jesus and you ask him to help you forget. I read an article this week in the New York Times written by a neurologist. This neurologist uh, does Alzheimer's research at Columbia University in New York City. and He's an expert. He's an expert in memory. And he says that there's a danger in remembering too much. And he says that forgetting is not only normal, but it's necessary for mental health. And of course, there's all kinds of forgetting that's unhealthy. That's Alzheimer's. But there's an opposite disorder in many ways to Alzheimer's. You know what it is. It's PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD is when we can't properly forget a traumatic experience. And so healing from PTSD means that we need the emotional impact of an experience to fade. Because if it doesn't fade, we get stuck and we revive our distress in perpetuity. See, one way to understand PTSD is to see it as a disorder stemming from too much memory. And there's a drug that'll fix this. It's called MMDA. 
It's, a real, it's literally like 35 letters. That's why I just, they said we do MMDA for short, short. So I said I'm good with that. And this drug, this MMDA, it accelerates the forgetting of these memories. Doesn't that sound awesome? But you know what MDMA is? Ecstasy. It's illegal. Ever heard of it? It's highly addictive, and it has the great potential to ruin your life. But you see the appeal, don't you? It allows you to forget painful things. Wouldn't you love to forget your pains and your fears and your guilt without it being dangerous? What if you were offered something that did just that and it nourished you? Well, brothers and sisters, that's what happens at the table each week. You're asking Jesus, who is here with you, to, and he's present with you, to help you have his memory of your sin in your life, which is that he remembers it no more. That's why we come to the table each week. So there's this past of looking back to the substitutionary death of Jesus. There's this present where we're begging Jesus to help us forget our sin as he has. But there's also a future. Did you see it in verse 16? In verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, For I tell you, I will not eat this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has missed communion the last 100,000 weeks while his church has been taken. He's missed this meal that many times. Meanwhile, we just keep celebrating it like he's told us to. And what he's saying is that he is waiting for us to join him at his table that's represented in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while we eat this meal every week, he's present, but he doesn't eat with us. He waits for us at this meal so that we can eat it with him together face to face. So when you come, you see the fullness of his blood and body when you're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You'll see it more clearly than you ever have when you're with him bodily. You'll see his blood spilled, his body broken on the cross in that meal. You'll be with him not just spiritually, you'll be with him bodily on that day. On that day, you will have forgotten your sin just like Jesus has. On that day, there will be no more PTSD because of the bad decisions that you have made in your life. Won't that be glorious? Think about Josephine Baker. She used these three time frames, past, present, and future, in her work as a spy. She could look back to the past. She knew what bondage was like growing up as an African-American in St. Louis in the early 20th century. She knew the present. She knew how sweet it was to have freedom in France because of the lowered racial temperatures there. And she knew the liberties that could come if the Germans were overthrown. Brother and sister, you've got to recognize that these three time frames are needed by you because you too are in a battle. Satan is plotting your demise just like he was plotting Jesus. And maybe it just seems like he's won. 
I mean, James 5 does say that Satan prowls around like a crouching lion seeking to devour us. So does it seem like COVID got you once and for all? That there really is no coming back for you? Does it seem like there's a difficult family relationship that you're just not going to get over? Does it seem like your mental illness has won out? Does it seem like your addiction has taken you down for good? Well, can I share some good news with you? Whatever it looks like is ruining your life may ultimately be what saves you. See, when Jesus hung on the cross as a corpse, it looked like Satan won, didn't it? Here here you are, you've got the cross, you've got this symbol of destruction and death, but it was used by God to bring about life. Well, don't you think that if God can do that with a cross, he can do it with COVID? Don't you think he can do it with your addiction? Don't you think he can do it with whatever trial you're facing, your mental illness, and maybe he can even do it with your sin to bring about salvation for you? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus and Satan are in agreement on their plan for you. But the motivation's altogether different. Jesus has lovingly allowed the pain to enter your life because it's going to end up in life for you, while Satan thinks it's going to kill you. See, think back to our text. Jesus and Satan were both determined for Jesus to die. Both of their plans led to the cross, but that's the extent of the agreement. When Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders got what they wanted. When Jesus was crucified, Judas got what he bargained for. When Jesus was crucified, Satan got what he had been scheming since the garden. But what the religious leaders, Judas and Satan, didn't know is that the cross would ultimately be the instrument for victory for God. It was the instrument for their defeat but it brought about our salvation. So brother and sister, no matter how much Satan conspires against you, you can know that you're in on a counter conspiracy. See, at this very moment, the God who planned his victory over Satan, even through the betrayal of Jesus, is planning to work everything out in your life for your genuine good and for God's greater glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross today. We thank you for this meal, Lord, that we need it. We need it to properly frame for us what the past was. We need this meal in the present as we try to forget our sin. And Lord, we need it for the future. Lord, we need it to create in us a longing to eat this meal with you bodily. Oh, Lord, would you work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.